Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading can be found on page 290 of the Pew Bibles. And it's 1 Samuel chapter 18, so page 290. 1 Samuel 18, beginning at the first verse. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Edriel of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you, and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. 
When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michal, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. This is the word of the Lord. We thank you, our Lord and God, for who you are. We thank you that you're not only the victorious God that we've been singing of just now, but you are also the everlasting God. You don't faint, but you are the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings like eagles. And we pray as we think of your character and we think of your amazing love, uh, how you first loved us in sending your son to die for us. We pray that you'd help us then in response to love you. Help us to see what that will look like tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, just in case you missed it, if you haven't been here for the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been looking through uh, the book of 1 Samuel from chapter 16 when David uh, really first appears on the scene. And we're at 1 Samuel chapter 18 now. You might find it helpful. In fact, I know you'll find it helpful if you grab hold of a Bible, page 290, as we continue looking through this series. And the other thing that I think you'll find particularly helpful will be to dig out the, uh, the sermon outline uh, on this um, uh, white piece of paper that's tucked inside your bundle. Um, you may not particularly like sermon outlines. You may not be bothered about taking notes, but there's a few quotes on here, and I think it will be helpful for you to have that to hand as I quote from uh, uh, one particular writer. I rarely meet people who say that they are against Jesus. Uh, From time to time, I do meet someone who is vehemently against Jesus, but I don't meet many people like that. I I don't meet many atheists, but those I have met tell me that they have respect for Jesus and his teaching. I don't meet that many Muslims. Uh, I met one... Uh, this time last year, and had good time over several weeks with him. Uh, But those, and he was one of them, those that I have met tell me they believe that Jesus is a prophet. They're not against him. I do meet quite a lot of people who are, I don't know how how they describe themselves, but I guess they'd say agnostic, people who aren't sure about God. Again, very few of them are against Jesus if they've thought about him at all. Indeed, many of the people I do meet are indifferent towards Jesus they they just haven't thought about him they don't really have an opinion about him either way but they they certainly wouldn't say they're against him I was talking to somebody years back now uh, after their a friend of theirs had died and and after expressing my my sympathy we chatted for some time then I said and was he a Christian 
And the girl replied, well, he wasn't against Jesus. Some people, it seems, like to be neutral towards Jesus. But, but here's the thing for tonight. This is what we're going to learn tonight. And it's summed up in Jesus' own words where he said this. He who is not with me is against me. According to Jesus, his own words, it's simply not possible to be neutral towards him. Uh, An article in the journal Current Biology, I need to be honest here, I don't read Current Biology, I I, I looked this up on the website. Um, An article in the uh, journal Current Biology argues that the dung beetle uses the Milky Way galaxy to direct it as it rolls balls of muck along the ground. The research was done by Dr. Dak. Now, of course, many may want to contest Dr. Dak's findings, but I have to tell you that I cannot get worked up or passionate about the navigational coordinates used by the dung beetle. It doesn't bother me, and it never will bother me whether the dung beetle is guided by the Milky Way or not. I am completely neutral on the subject. On the other hand, listen to the adverts for Marmite, and the makers will tell you that you either love it or you hate it. There is no middle ground, it seems, when it comes to Marmite. I am completely in the middle ground when it comes to dung beetles. Now, if it helps you to think like this, what I'm going to say tonight is Jesus is more Marmite than dung beetle, and I never thought I'd ever (laughs) say that. The point is, you either love him or you hate him. Now, that is what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 18. In this chapter, you see, there are only two responses to David. People either love him or they hate him. They praise him or they want to kill him. And David, you'll remember, and as Joe reminded us, is a shadow, a picture of Jesus. We saw back in chapter 16 that the prophet Samuel was instructed to Uh, by God to anoint David and we saw how the Lord described David as his chosen king. David then was the Messiah of the time, a picture of the Messiah to come for the name Messiah simply means God's anointed king and so David is a shadow, a picture if you like of the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus and right through this chapter David is either loved or hated, no middle ground. You'll see, I've put it on the handout there, Uh, he, David, is loved by Jonathan in verses 1 and 3. He's loved by all Israel and Judah in verse 16. He's loved by Saul's daughter, Michael, in verse 20 and verse 28, and again by Saul's servants in verse 22. People love David throughout this chapter. And there is only one other response to David, and that is hatred. We see that from King Saul, and we'll see it from the Philistines as well. People either love the Messiah or they hate him. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. Now, to understand these two responses, remember where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, For the last two weeks, we've looked at uh, chapter 17, where David killed the great Philistine giant Goliath. Goliath, the the man-mountain who had taunted Israel, challenging them to fight him. Who are you going to send out to fight me? And threatening them to take all Israel into a life of miserable slavery if no one could defeat him. Everyone, do you remember? Everyone in Israel's army was terrified. They knew they couldn't defeat Goliath. But then David, the Lord's Messiah, stepped onto the scene and he fought their battle for them. The battle they couldn't fight, he fought it for them. Now John Woodhouse says in his excellent commentary on 1 Samuel, he writes these words, they're on the, on the handout. 
He, David, had done what Israel's king was supposed to do, namely fight Israel's enemies. David had not only fought when no one else, including Saul, was prepared to fight. He'd won. And that's why people loved David. David had loved Israel by stepping in and fighting their battle for them, rescuing them from their enemy. Just as the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, loved us by defeating sin and death and Satan at the cross. He first loved us. That's why we love him, because he first loved us. But when people don't recognise the love he has for us, when people don't see what an amazing thing it is that the Son of God loved me and gave his life up for me, well, when they don't see that, they will never be for him. And that means being against him. Now, that is what we're going to see in this chapter. So let's look at it in more detail now. And the first point on the handout, Saul kept David. The first five verses of this chapter sort of summarise the situation that is going to develop over the years following Goliath's defeat. In these opening verses, we are shown two responses to David, Jonathan's response and Saul's response. And these two responses are deliberately set side by side in the first five verses and indeed intertwined in the first five verses to put into sharp relief the striking contrast between the two. First, there's Jonathan's response to David. Look at verse one. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. David and Jonathan's story is often seen as a wonderful and powerful human friendship, but it is so much more than that. Jonathan, remember, was King Saul's eldest son, and as such, he was the crown prince. By all normal reckoning, Jonathan would have expected to be the next king of Israel. And so David, the Lord's chosen Messiah, who just defeated Goliath, could have been seen as a threat to Jonathan. Indeed, the last time Jonathan is mentioned before this shows him attacking and defeating the Philistines. And because of his bravery, Jonathan had gained a great reputation for himself in Israel. He was loved by Israel. But now, in defeating Goliath, David's popularity had soared way above Jonathan's. And so we expect Jonathan to see David as a great rival, a threat, a pretender to the throne, but not a bit of it. Do you see what we just read in verse 1? Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Jonathan had every reason to hate David, but he loved him. More literally, verse 1 could be translated, Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. They were bound together. There was a remarkable unity between David and Jonathan. Where we might have expected to see rivalry and jealousy, they are knit together. There is a family bond here. It's that strong. They're not rivals, but brothers. Indeed, it is quite possible that Jonathan now treated David as if he were his older brother. And then we see the extent of Jonathan's love for David in verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe, off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Jonathan made a covenant with David. This is a binding agreement. And the events of verse 4 are, if you like, the enacting of that covenant. The robe that Jonathan gave to David was, of course, his royal robe. Jonathan was transferring his royal rights to David, including his right to the throne. This is an act of abdication, if you like. In Jonathan's mind, 
David now would take precedence. And what is even more amazing is Jonathan rejoiced in that. And so Jonathan's response to David is a brilliant example of what it means to love the saviour who first loved me. Here is a right response to the Messiah, to see him as my older brother. The New Testament talks about Jesus as my older brother. But here's the real point. It is to climb down off the throne, to get off my high horse and to humble myself and to acknowledge him as king. Now, let's be sure, we, we aren't the ones who make Jesus king. Off we say, oh, I'm going to make Jesus king. No, we don't make him king. The Lord has chosen him as king. He is the king. He is the Lord's anointed. I don't make him king, but I do need to acknowledge him as king. And that means that, that I don't call the shots in my life. Rather, I willingly and lovingly submit to him, loving him because he first loved me. That's what Jonathan did with David. So he's a brilliant example for us. By contrast, look at Saul in verse 2. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. Uh, Later in the chapter, we'll read of Saul's jealousy of David, of his uh, attempted murder of David, and his plots to get rid of David by putting him on the front line to get killed by the Philistines. And while verse 2 doesn't seem anywhere near as bad as all that, even here in verse 2 we see a very wrong response to the Lord's anointed. Look again at verse 2. And just those three words, Saul kept David. It's actually what Saul always did. In chapter 14, verse 52, we read that whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. That quote is on uh, the, uh, the handout there, very important. Whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Now, that's what Saul, you see, was doing with David. He saw in David, he was a mighty and brave man. He just defeated Goliath. And now, this is crucial. Saul wanted David to serve him. To Saul, David was a man who could be useful a man who could strengthen Saul's position, a man who could help his cause, help him to get on in life. So even before we see the obvious signs of hatred towards David later on in the chapter, even here in verse 2, we see a fundamentally wrong approach to the Lord's Messiah. On the surface, it looks quite reasonable. You could even say that Saul seemed to be for David. But it isn't. He isn't. It's terribly wrong. Again, we need to watch that, that we don't do this with the Messiah, with Jesus. I see it in people. I've got to look for it in myself because if it's here, I've got to get rid of it. Like Saul with David, we keep him. Seeing Jesus as someone who can be useful to us, someone who can help us get on in life, someone who we can use for our purposes. Yeah, David would be useful, you know. Saul, uh, Jesus would be useful if I... Um, if I, if I can pray and get out of fixes, that would be quite useful. This sort of approach certainly doesn't acknowledge Jesus as king, as Jonathan did with David. It is very easy to think that we can take Jesus into our lives to work for us, to make life easy for us, to smooth the way for us, to give us what we want. But listen here, when we do that, although it doesn't look like it, at that point we are against Jesus. For Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. 
And I think this is why some people who call themselves Christian give up on Jesus when things don't go the way they'd hoped for. See, things don't quite work out how they wanted, so they then drift away from the Christian life because, of course, the reason they looked as if they were following Jesus in the first place was because they wanted Jesus to do stuff for them, and now he hasn't done it. Now, if that is ringing bells with you, then the frightening thing is that this chapter says to treat Jesus like that is to be against him, even if it doesn't look like it on the surface. Do you see then, this chapter is set up with two responses to the Lord's anointed. And then there's something else that runs right through the chapter. It's the wonderful truth that nothing will thwart the Lord's anointed. Not even those who are against him. Uh, so we read verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him, David, to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. The key word there is successful. David was successful in whatever he did. And that's what we read right through this chapter. You'll see that same word in verse 15. And you'll see it again in verse 30. And when we see a repetition like that in a chapter, it helps us to see something of the structure of the chapter. And so I put a little structure on the handout uh, for you. It's uh, on uh, the back now. We're over the page if you haven't yet turned over. So having seen how David kept Saul, second we see Saul's jealousy towards David in verses 6 to 11. So again, let me go back. In verses 1 to 5, we're given a summary of the situation that would develop over the years uh, since David has uh, killed Goliath. We see a summary of how things are now going to develop that either people love him or hate him. Now, here in verse 6, we're taken back to the day of David's great triumph over Goliath. So verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Well, Saul was livid. He was livid as he heard this song from the women of Israel. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Not that we ought to see why Saul was so angry, but, but as we listen into John Woodhouse, things look very different. Again, on the hand, he's brilliant, this. John Woodhouse writes in his commentary, if you understand the conventions of Hebrew poetry, and if you're not paranoid... You can appreciate that there may have been nothing deliberately sinister in the women's song. They were linking Saul and David together in this victory. The convention of putting a number in the first line and beefing it up in the second line was normal Hebrew poetic style. It was as if they were to say more prosaically, David and Saul have struck down their thousands and tens of thousands. And they did mention Saul first, writes John Woodhouse. So do you see, the song of the women in verse 7 was quite reasonable. It's quite possible that they weren't making any point about David's superiority over Saul at all. And anyway, let's face it, it was David who killed Goliath, not Saul. Saul really should have been grateful to David. Saul should have seen that David had rescued all Israel from defeat and from a life of slavery in Philistine. But you see, when you're insecure, as Saul was, 
And when you believe that you should be king of the castle, as Saul did, well, then you don't see things as they're meant and you quickly get angry and jealous at the slightest thing. The irony of all this is not meant to be lost on us. You see, back in chapter 13, no need to turn to it now, but back in chapter 13, when Jonathan had won a victory over the Philistines, all Israel had heard that Saul had done it and Saul was happily happy to take the glory on that day. And I think that is the heart of the issue. Saul wanted the glory. So when David came onto the scene, Saul knew that his power was, was slipping away, slipping through his fingers. Back in, in chapter 15, Saul had been told by Samuel the prophet that the kingdom was to be taken away from him and given to another. Again, I've put the reference and uh, the words on the handout there. Chapter 15, verse 28. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. Those words must have haunted Saul. He wanted to be king. But from that moment on, he knew there would be another one coming along who would be made king in his place. And that's why he reacted so badly in chapter 18 when the women sang their song in verse 7. Now again, you see, it is so different from Jonathan's response to David. Saul wants the glory, wants the limelight, wants the praise for himself. He wants the praise that is rightly the saviour's. And that is what makes us hate the Messiah. When we want to be top dog, when we want to be king of our lives, when we then we will not be for the Messiah. And if you're not for him, you are against him. And so, verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. When we're against the Lord's Messiah, we are under God's judgment. And God's judgment for Saul came in the form of this evil spirit. It shows us that God is sovereign over all creation. It is God who allows evil to act. So, what a mighty fall for Saul. Earlier, we'd read in 1 Samuel, the Holy Spirit had come upon him when he was made king. Now, it's an evil spirit. And you notice in verses 10 and 11, a very clear contrast between Saul and David. Saul has an evil spirit, and with spear in his hand, he wants to kill and destroy. David, as we saw in chapter 16, has the spirit of the Lord, and with a lyre in his hand, he seeks to refresh and soothe the troubled soul. And here's the thing. If we, like Saul, want to be king of our lives, we will seek to kill and destroy those who challenge us, including the king of the universe. It is exactly what we saw when Jesus came among us. Jesus was not a physically threatening character. He came to help us. He came to save us, for goodness sake. But you remember, those who wanted to be in charge saw him as a threat and wanted him out of their lives and off the planet. And so we read in Mark chapter 3 and verse 6 these words, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. See, ultimately, there are only two responses to Jesus. If we're not for him, we're against him. But look, as we read verse 10 and we see the Lord's anointed soothing even his enemy... 
Why wouldn't we want God's Messiah to be our king? Why would we want to reject the spirit-anointed chosen Messiah who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest? Why wouldn't we want him to be king of our lives when he brings peace and refreshment to our souls? Well, Saul didn't want David as king and he hurled his spear at him. But end of verse 11, David eluded him twice. And that makes the first, first words of verse 12 remarkable. Do you see them there? Verse 12, Saul's afraid of David. Well, Saul has just hurled his spear at David twice. And so you'd have expected verse 12 to read, David was afraid of Saul. But no, it's the other way around. And so it should be. Because to be an enemy of the Lord's anointed is the worst position you can be in. To be against the Lord's Messiah is madness. For do you remember what we've already seen through the chapter? He will succeed and you will not defeat him because, verse 12, the Lord is with him. And so to be his enemy, you should be afraid. For you will not stop him and he will succeed. And that is exactly how this little section ends with David's success, verse 14. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul noticed how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. There it is again, just two responses. You either love him as Israel did or you hate and fear him as Saul did. You're either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. First point, Saul kept David. Second point, Saul's jealousy towards David. And thirdly and finally, Saul's plot against David, verses 17 to 27. We've already seen how in a fit of rage Saul tried to kill David. The rest of the chapter is all about Saul's premeditated plot to get rid of David once and for all. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight, fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. You see, Saul soon realised that he couldn't kill David. He tried and missed. But more than that, all Israel loved David. If Saul killed David, all Israel would hate Saul. So Saul offered his daughter in marriage and said to David, all you have to do is fight against the Philistines. Saul's plot was simple. Get David on the front line and get the Philistines to kill David in battle. It was a canny plot. Saul knew what made David tick. Look closely at verse 17. Saul said, serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. You see, Saul knew that David wanted to serve the Lord, and so he played on that as the incentive to get David on the front line. And what's more, Saul knew that if David was married to the king's daughter, David would become an even greater prize for the Philistines in battle. The same way that when Prince Harry was on active duty in Afghanistan recently, there was an embargo on the press reporting it so that the Taliban wouldn't be able to target him, the Queen's grandson. Well, on the one hand, he's just another soldier, but what a coup. What an encouragement for the enemy to defeat someone from the royal household. That was Saul's aim, to get David killed. But Saul's plot was thwarted because David was a man of honour and humility. Verse 18, David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. 
So Saul's plot came to nothing and the marriage didn't happen. But Saul wasn't going to give in that easily. And so in time, Saul saw another opportunity to get rid of David. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. The second plot then appears to be heading exactly the same way as the first. However, there's a twist. Verse 24. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. As we've seen David was a man of honour, a humble man. He knew it was no small thing to take the hand of a woman in marriage and not least of all the, daughters, uh, the king's daughter. David also knew the Jewish custom to pay the bride price. You see, that's what this is all about in verse 25. It's about paying a price for the bride. Now, we in our society might balk at that a little bit. You might say, this is outrageous, thinking you can buy a woman. That's not actually the point. It, it's not as it seems. Getting a bloke to pay a bride price was a measure of his commitment to his bride. This was a good thing. Why, you pay all that for her? Wow. And so Saul set the bride price. 100 Philistine foreskins, not the normal thing you have to pay for a bride. (laughs) And let me say it was no small price. To kill 100 Philistines was a stiff task. And so the trap was set. It was surely too much for David to resist. On offer was the lovely Michael, who was in love with David. And to get her, David had to kill a hundred Philistines, and they were the enemy of the Lord. And do you remember how David twice called Goliath this uncircumcised Philistine? So David could remain a man of honour by paying the price for Michael, and by doing it with something he felt passionate about, the blood of the Philistines. Once again, Saul's intention was clear, end of verse 25. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And I love how John Woodhouse imagines Saul's thinking. Again, I've put it on here. Just imagine Saul thinking these words. One lucky pebble from a sling against one big Philistine was one thing. Let's see how the boy goes against a hundred Philistines. And if he beats them, let's see that he's so hated that they will get him in the end. And so the trap was set. And we read verse 26, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. And then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. I don't know whether this is right, but I imagine David walking into Saul's throne room, holding a big bag, and then emptying the contents all over the table and counting them one by one. And I would love to see Saul's face as David counted past 100 all the way to 200. And I imagine the clenched teeth as Saul gave Michael to David in marriage. And so, as John Woodhouse writes, not only was David alive and kicking, his reputation had gone up several notches and he was about to be joined to the royal family. 
And we know how much people love a royal wedding. And the result of all that, verse 28, when Saul realised that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. Again, David was successful. Nothing will stop the Lord's anointed. So you don't want to be against him. Nothing's going to stop him. Saul and and the Philistines, though, grew in their hatred against David. And meanwhile, David's reputation with those who loved him only grew greater. And so again, we see at the end of this section, there are only two responses to the Lord's anointed. You either love him or you hate him. There's no middle ground. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you are against me. So what about you and me? For him or against him? I'm not at this moment asking you, do do you call yourself a Christian? For you see, the story of Saul's response to David is most alarming. It's most alarming not when he's hurling a spear at David or plotting to kill David. Now then there's no doubt that Saul hated David. For me, what is most alarming is Saul's first response back in verse 2. And those three words, Saul kept David. Saul wanted the Lord's anointed, but he wanted him so that he would do what he wanted him to do for him. Saul wanted David because he could see how David could help him prosper and succeed. The rest of the chapter is important because it shows us that Saul really was against David at that point, but it didn't look like it. And that's where this is so challenging for me. And I trust for you, it might look to others as if we're for Jesus. And we might even think that we're for Jesus when in fact we are against him. We're just using him for our ends. And that's where looking at Jonathan's response is so helpful. See, he's the one who really loved the Messiah. Jonathan knew that David was the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen king. Jonathan saw that the Messiah had fought the battle and defeated the enemy. Jonathan knew that he needed the Messiah And Jonathan saw that in that victory, he saw how much the Messiah loved him. And so Jonathan climbed down off his high horse, acknowledged that the Lord's Messiah is king. And he loved the Messiah because the Messiah had first loved him. That's how we love Jesus. And when that's our heart's response, then we know that we are for him and not against him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very clear two responses. And uh, as we long, I hope, all of us here to be like Jonathan, we recognise... the sorliness, if I can put it that way. We recognise that so easily we could be turning to you for all the wrong motives. And so we ask you, by your spirit, to clean up our motives, to look again at what the Lord Jesus has done for us, to realise we need him 
to rescue us and to save us. And like Jonathan, to throw our lives down before him in praise and adoration and love. May that be the heartbeat of our lives and may our lives be marked by that love for him because he first loved us. Amen.